So yesterday, college football started. I don't think there were any good games on yesterday that I saw. I just kind of flipped through. But living in Georgia for 10 years and Mississippi for six years, uh, the SEC uh, football, I mean, is is king. So we really got into college football. And the head coach of Georgia during most of the time that we were in Georgia was a man named Mark Richt. Mark Richt was the uh, assistant coach to Bobby Bowden, who was the coach for many years at Florida State University. Bobby just died three weeks ago today, August the 8th. And uh, Mark Rick shared at his funeral. He, he shared the story of how when Bobby Bowden began to see success at Florida State University, his team never went several years and they had winning records and they played in some big games, but they couldn't win the big one, the national championship. They never got to a point where they won the national championship. So finally, while Mark Richt is an assistant coach at Florida State University, they win the national championship. It is a stellar moment and an exciting moment for Florida State University. After they celebrate, they walk off the field. A few weeks later, after taking a short break, his coaches all meet back together with him. And he asks them this question. Guys, do you feel any different after we won the big one? And he said he went around the room and asked every person, not really, not really any different. About the same, expectations are higher, but not really, not really any different. And he said this to his coaching staff, guys, the reason that you don't feel any different is because this isn't the big one. Winning a football game isn't the big one. The big one is the day that you pray to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. He spoke that to his coaching staff. And Mark Rick said, man, that stuck with me. That was the day that brought change. That is the big one. Paul, as he is writing to the church in Thessalonica, is sharing with them about that day, the big day, when they received the gospel. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians for several weeks. And as we jump in, uh, we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to read all through chapter 1, the 10 verses. And then we're going to come back next week. And we're talking about receiving the gospel this week. Next week, we're going to talk about living the gospel. And we'll be in chapter 1 again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Pick up with me in verse number 1. Paul, Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word 
in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And with that, let's pray. God, speak to us today. Move in our hearts and lives. Speak And may we have open ears and open hearts to your truth and your name. Amen. After leaving Philippi in Acts chapter 16, after being beaten in Philippi and and being in stocks and imprisoned and and leading the Philippian jailer to the Lord and then leaving Philippi in Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas go through Amphipolis and Apollonia and they come to the city of Thessalonica. And it tells us that Paul and Silas were only in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths where they reasoned uh, in, the, in the synagogues uh, with the, the people, with the Jewish people in particular that would listen. And it says that many of them were persuaded or some of them were persuaded. They heard the gospel and believed. And then some also some Greeks, some Gentiles came to know Jesus. And he says that there were some women. But you remember what happened. There was a crew that came down of, of Jews who believed that following the law was truly the answer. And they stirred up a riot and they ran Paul and Silas out of town. Paul, after only having spent a short time in Thessalonica, now is wondering what's going on. He didn't have the opportunity to just click on the internet and say, hey, what's going on in Thessalonica today? Like uh, I was walking through earlier and somebody was checking the radar of when uh, the storm was going to hit New Orleans. What technology we have today. Paul knew nothing of it. So he wants to know how are the believers in Thessalonica doing? So what Paul does is he sends Timothy. And Timothy goes off, he hears and watches and sees and observes. And he comes back with the news to Paul on how they're doing. And so Paul then writes the book of First Thessalonians. He writes back to the church. He, he writes really for... For three reasons. First off, to encourage them. Paul writes to encourage them. He'd only been there a short time. And remember that when Paul was there, they caused a riot. And, uh, and, and so times were tough and affliction and persecution was upon them. And so he wanted to encourage them to, to stay with the faith and to walk in the faith and to remember Christ. Then he also wanted to instruct them. To instruct them. The book of 1 Thessalonians has some rich doctrine in it. We'll look at it a little bit today. But as we go through 1 Thessalonians, there's some great truths that Paul wanted to drive home in their life. And then Paul wanted to reconnect with them again. Paul wanted to reconnect with these believers. He wanted them to know that, man, I'm thinking about you. I have you in my heart and, and I haven't forgotten and I'm praying and I, and I, I want us to make a difference together in the world with the gospel. So as Paul writes to the church at 
the church of Thessalonians, the, the, the church in Thessalonica, he writes to them this letter and he, he begins with this sense of thanks. But Paul in this first chapter goes back to think about when he came into Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. He wants them to be mindful of the decision that they made, how the gospel was shared, how the gospel was received, and how their lives were changed. So let's think about that this morning. First off, we think about the, the gospel and how the gospel was shared. The gospel was, was shared with these believers. As Paul strode into the city of Thessalonica, it says that, that he began to teach to them uh, in the, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And what he did was he taught Jesus. He shared the message of the gospel. He went back probably and presumably to Isaiah 53, where it tells us and reminds us that uh, Jesus was going to have to die, suffer and die, and he would rise from the dead. But notice what Paul writes as he, as we think about the, how the gospel was shared in verse number five. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Let's just stop there. The gospel didn't come in word only, but the gospel did come in word. The gospel was shared with words, in words. Paul had to physically and visibly speak the words of the gospel. Paul didn't come into Thessalonica and say this. I'm going to come into Thessalonica and I'm just going to live as a good example. Paul didn't come into Thessalonica and just say, hey, maybe if people see me go to the synagogue and they see my example, then, then they're going to turn to Jesus. No. The gospel was shared in words. He went in and Acts 17 says that he reasoned with them. He dialogued with them in the synagogue on the Sabbath, showing them the person of Jesus. But notice what it says in verse number five, that the word, that the gospel didn't come in word only, but in power. The word came in power. There was this picture that, that as we, we think of, of this, the gospel not coming in word only, but in power, that God is at work here. That the power, the, the word here is, is the, the word we get dunamis, or uh, sometimes people say the, the word dynamite comes from that. I don't think that Paul's necessarily trying to set the city on fire, but dynamo, the picture of energy. He came and shared, and there was great power in his sharing that impacted them. The power of God was at work in their life. Some people today are saying, hey, man, the gospel, that's archaic. The message of Jesus, that is obsolete. Can I tell you the message of the gospel is not obsolete. The message of the gospel and God's word is absolute. It's one of the only things that's going to last forever, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but God's word will not pass away. So it came in power. Then he says, not only in word, but in power, and then in the Holy Spirit, so that God is working through the Holy Spirit as Paul is speaking to them. And John chapter 16, verse 8 and following, it tells us that the Holy Spirit cut the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Sin 
because we've all broken God's law somewhere and we cannot get to heaven with sin attached to our life. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how much we think our good is going to outweigh our bad, sin is stuck to us and there's only one person who can remove it. His name is Jesus. So we see that the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin and of righteousness because there is only one righteous one who went to heaven and of judgment to come warning and saying, look, judgment is coming. So the Holy Spirit is moving and convicting so that as these believers are experiencing the power of God in the gospel and the Holy Spirit in the gospel, you know what we're finding? Verse 4 has come true. It says, we know, brethren, your election by God. Paul, Paul didn't know. Paul, see, see, God was at work in, 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 in eternity past, and Paul is just experiencing the fruit of this, but, but, but we see that this is a, a, a God equation through this process. So the Holy Spirit speaks. The power of God is released. The word is being spoke. And then it says that the gospel came not in word only, but in power in the Holy Spirit and in assurance. The, the word and picture of being in assurance means with confidence. And he's not talking about the listeners on this occasion. He's talking about them as speakers. That as they speak, the confidence and the power and the boldness of God is coming out of their lives and they are sharing the gospel, not just with his authority, but with an example because he goes on to say, you guys know what kind of life we lived among you. The gospel was life-changing and life-transforming and you got to see it. Did you know Romans 8.11 says that the same spirit Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us. Paul is living in the power of the Spirit. And so he's living with confidence and assurance. If the devil can get you defeated, one of the ways he will do that is through doubt. Specifically doubting your salvation. If you're at a point of doubting your salvation, then you're not going to go share Jesus with others because you don't even know if you fully got it yourself. There's this doubt. Some of you may be struggling with that today. Love to have a conversation with you about that. But here's the truth of it. Our feelings can change. But once we know that we trust the Lord and we've come to that place of turning to him alone as the only one who can save us, the Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that we are adopted into his family, and we cannot be unadopted. But if we're doubting, then that is going to dampen our fervor to share with others. So the gospel came in much assurance and confidence. The gospel was shared. But secondly, we find the gospel was not only shared, but the gospel was received. Now, it's interesting to me as we think about the gospel being received back in Acts chapter 17, I think around verse number four, it tells us that that there were some who were persuaded. So the gospel was received for salvation. The gospel was received and some people came to know Jesus as their savior. Notice as Paul writes, he's writing to the church. These are people who have come and come in to be part of the church family who have trusted Jesus as their savior, who were immersed and become part of a church 
family, the gospel was received for salvation. Notice down in verse number six, where it says that they were followers of Paul, but and of the Lord. They were followers of the Lord. They had truly trusted Jesus. The gospel was received for salvation. Today, can I tell you, the gospel can only be received for salvation when you take personal responsibility for your life and for your sin. Did you hear about the woman, and I cannot say her name. I tried first hour and everybody laughed at me because I don't know Russian very well. But, but this is a true story. Did you hear about the lady in Russia who is suing McDonald's because during Lent, when she had promised that she was going to give up meat, she saw an advertisement for a cheeseburger and she gave in and she ate a cheeseburger during Lent and now she feels like that has really hurt her spiritual and religious life and so she's suing McDonald's. It is a real story. You can go look this up. Please do. That way you'll know I'm not lying because this sounds so crazy that you must think this guy's crazy up here. I I read stories like that and I think, who does that? Her, her, Her point is, it's not my fault. It's McDonald's fault. Can I tell you today? Every time you've had a bad thought, every time you said a bad word, every time you've done a bad action, it's your fault. And the Bible says that you're a sinner. And the only way that you can have that sin removed from your life is by trusting Jesus alone. Now, granted, there may be people in your life that, that you know, can, can punch your buttons. But you're responsible when the button goes off. The gospel was received for salvation. But then notice... The gospel was not only received for salvation, but the gospel was received in affliction. Notice with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice in in, uh, verse number uh, 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, in power, the Holy Spirit, much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. When these folks received God's word in their life, for some of them, that meant losing friends. You're trusting Jesus? You're not going to be my friend anymore. I want to go down to the temple where I can be involved in idolatry and be involved in immorality. And if you're going to act that way, then you're not, I'm not going to hang around you anymore. It, it, it would divide families. Families would disown people who came to know Christ. Did you know that in the Middle East, across North Africa, and in the Middle East today, when someone professes Jesus as Savior, and specifically when they identify and say, look, I'm going all the way in, and I'm going to give a public testimony of my bap- through my baptism that I've trusted Jesus. Can you know? Do you know for some of them, that's a death sentence. They receive the word in affliction. But it's interesting because it says that they received the word in affliction, but it also says that they received the word in affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So, so here we have this scene. They're in affliction, but they have joy. How can that be? 
You point to someone out in the world who has affliction and doesn't know Jesus and they have joy. You can't find them. Because for many people, their happiness and joy is determined by all their situations and circumstances around them. If the job's going good, if school's going good, if the kids are going good, and everything is at peace in my life, I can have this happiness and then I can breathe in the sense of tranquility. Ah, Everything in my life is where it should be. But for believers, we recognize that joy does not come from the outside in, but joy is from the inside out. That joy, Galatians 5.22, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so that it is not something that I produce. It's not something that circumstances produce. It's something that the Spirit produces in me so that when I have this joy, no matter the circumstances that are going on around me, I can still have a heartfelt, deep-seated joy because of the Holy Spirit in me. Now, this doesn't mean every moment's going to be ha-ha, slap each other on the back, laughter. It, it, it's not like that. But even through the times of crisis and even in affliction, that deep-seated joy that comes from the Holy Spirit being in me. Some of you today, you're unhappy. Some of you who are believers today, you're unhappy and it's your fault. The Lord says you can experience joy even in the affliction of your life. But that joy only comes through him. So seek him. Submit to him. Be filled with the spirit. Then you can experience that. Can I tell you that makes easy preaching. But my life can be like yours too. Every day is not sunshine and puppies and rubber balls. Sometimes life's hard. Sometimes there's deep sadness and grief. Sometimes our bodies are, are sick. But even through it all, the Holy Spirit can provide joy. The gospel was received for salvation in affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Then we see that the gospel was not only shared and the gospel received, but the gospel was life-changing. The gospel was life-transforming. The gospel made a difference in their life. When they came to understand that it's not about me and my religious stuff, and it's not about what I bring to the table, it's about him alone. When they came to understand that, we experience and see the life change. They became followers of, the, of, of us, Paul says, and of the Lord. And their testimony rang out, notice in verse number 8, from you the word of the Lord sounded out. But notice what people were saying about them in verse number 8. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. So Paul says, people know about when I came to Thessalonica in Acts 17. But most of all, this is what they really know. They know how the gospel was changing your life. And can I say just this this way? Their example is our challenge. Notice what they did. What manner of entry we had to you, verse number nine, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. We find three things happened in their life. First off, and, and these stand as challenges for us. First off, this, turn to God from idols. 
Turn to God from idols. You say, buddy, I don't have any idols. I mean, I don't have any, any golden statues at my house. There's nothing that I, that I worship. Really? You know what? For some of us, our object of worship is a black rectangle box. And it has a little clicker remote with it. And for hours and hours every day, we can fill our heart and our mind with all the stuff of the world. We can't spend a few minutes in the Word. We, we gotta, we're binging. For some, it's your work. For some, it's your money. Oh, you don't bow down to it, but you love it more than you love the Lord. You think about it more than you think about the Lord. It's more important to you than the Lord is. What is it? Their testimony was that they turned to God from idols. Now, notice, notice the order here, too. Notice what it does say, and notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they turned from idols to God. There are some people who say, if I can just turn my life around and get going better and clean myself up, then I will come to God. That's not what this says. It doesn't say that they turned from idols to God. It's that they turned to God from idols. So I want to tell you, wherever you are today and whatever's going on in your life today, your first step is turning to God, not trying to clean yourself up. Turn to God. And when you turn to God, then the Lord is going to give you the strength to deal with all that stuff that you need to have to turn from. They turn to God from idols. The second challenge, I think, in this passage for us, their example, our challenge, they serve the living and true God. So, so here's your challenge, serve the living and true God. There's something about when the Holy Spirit comes into our life that we're just not content just to, to come and park. We want to be involved. We want to do something. We want to make a difference so that there are people right now that are taking care of our kids and watching uh, the preschoolers that there are people who play in the band and those who sing and those who teach and those who help and those who, who are involved in all kinds of different areas of ministry, whether that be on mission and something, if we didn't have a picture of it, nobody would have known that you were even even there. It, it may be something secret. Maybe it's the aspect of, of coming alongside of that. I want to be a giver, not just someone who comes and sits. It's, I, I've got to do something. Because I have been served by the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for me and provided salvation, I want to serve. That's the, that's the deal. Served people, those who have been served supernaturally want to serve people. Then notice, thirdly, they're waiting for Jesus coming. Wait for Jesus coming. Look for Jesus coming. Now, I, I, I want us to take a minute. I told you that one of the reasons Paul wrote the book of First Thessalonians was to instruct. And I, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 is one of the great, just summarized Christological passages of the New Testament. So if you have that, look at First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Because this is what we see about Jesus. And then we're going to talk about waiting for Jesus in just a minute. It says... Uh, let's think about just the truths about Jesus. And to wait for his son, Jesus is God's son. Great spiritual truth that we need to just know. And to wait for his son from heaven. Where's Jesus coming from? Heaven. Jesus ascended. Acts chapter 1, verse number 11. 
Men, why are you standing there gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is going up is going to one day come, but Jesus ascended to heaven. He's coming from heaven because Jesus is in heaven. So, Jesus is God's son. Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus is coming. We're waiting for him. They're waiting for him to come from heaven. So, Jesus is God's son. He is in heaven, ascended to heaven. He is coming for us. Then notice what else it says. We're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. It tells us that Jesus died. And it tells us that Jesus rose because God rose him, raised him from the dead. So we're getting all these theological truths just in this one verse. Jesus is God's son who ascended to heaven, who is coming for us. He died. Why did he die? He died for our sin. God raised him up. He's alive. We're not commemorating a dead Jesus today. We're celebrating a living one. And then notice what he says. Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He delivers us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for him. We do not know when. We do not know what it all is going to look like. We have our ideas. But one day, Jesus, just as he came the first time and was born and laid in a manger, this this time he's not coming as a helpless baby, but he's coming as the king of kings. And we're waiting for him from heaven. One more story, Bobby Bowden's story, since college football started yesterday. While Bobby Bowden was coaching Florida State University, Pablo Lopez, one of their young men, student athletes on their football team, died. And Mark Rick shared at Bobby Bowden's funeral. He said, guys, there's an empty chair here today where Pablo used to sit. And the big challenge is, is I don't know where he is because I don't know where he stood with Jesus Christ. He's telling this to his football team. And he says, you guys are 18 to 22-year-old young men, and you think that you're going to live forever. But you're not. And the most important decision that you ever make is what you do with Jesus. The team had their practice, and the next day, Mark Richt, assistant coach, came and knocked on Bobby Bowden's door and said, Coach, I know you were talking to the athletes yesterday, but I need Jesus. Changed his life. I don't know what's going on in your life today, but I do know this. You need Jesus. All of us need Jesus. And even if we've come to trust Jesus as our Savior, every hour we still need Jesus. With that, let's pray. Lord, I I ask that you would uh, take these next moments of reflection, and then, Lord, as we step into the Lord's Supper, that it would be a time that uh, we're focused and that we're still, and that you'd speak to us in your awesome and wonderful power, and in your glorious name we pray. Amen.